while we're on the, the topic of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is, is a holiday that many of us look forward to with anticipation, but can, can sort of have a, a variety of emotions or feelings connected with that meal. So I want you to take just 15 or 20 seconds, and as you think about sitting down to that Thanksgiving table this coming Thursday, what What's the one word, maybe one word or one adjective that comes to your mind? How are you anticipating or feeling about that event this week? Just tell the person next to you. Right. Anyone want to share their anticipations? Ezra. Star fate. Starving. Starving. Oh, he's got an appetite. Sorry, I gotta clear my hearing out up here. Anybody else? So we've got someone who can't wait to eat on Thursday. Any other? Yes, Corinne. Uh, same as Ezra. Okay, people are starving. They're looking forward with great anticipation. Thanksgiving, probably more than any other single holiday in the United States, is not only a time where we eat quite a great amount, but it's probably the one time in many families where a a large portion of the family comes and sits around the table and, and spends time, you know, an entire meal, an entire afternoon reconnecting. And for some of us, anticipating that experience is like a slice of heaven, right? It's something out of a Norman Rockwell painting, right? It's, it's this time of great affection and reconnection and warmth. But for others of us, Thanksgiving might feel a little more stressful, right? For, for other families, I can think of a few meals like this, where, where Thanksgiving, instead of, of being like a Norman Rockwell painting, is, is just this time where, where the layers of our family sort of get churned up and, and brought to the surface in, in both the good things but also the hard things and the misunderstandings and the, the tensions in those relationships get amplified. And so sometimes Thanksgiving reminds us that being a family is a difficult thing. There are challenges and things to work through with one another. And as we sit down to to the Thanksgiving dinner and that Thanksgiving prayer is offered for our families, we might be feeling a whole host of different emotions and things as as the people and members of those families. While we have the individual households and families that, that we individually come from, most of what we've been spending this fall exploring in the book of Ephesians is who we are and what family, what kind of household we now belong to in the church, in the people of God, in the person of Jesus Christ. And we've, we've spent a lot of time pressing into that identity, what it means to be now a new creation in Christ, what it means to, to be taken from death into life, what it means to be joined to all these other men and women of, of multiple ethnic backgrounds, multiple tribes and tongues, right, being brought together into one new humanity. 
Paul says. And so to conceive of of this new family we now belong to and what we're meant to be about and, and how we operate with one another. Some ways we need to take our previous experiences of being a family and, and bring them back to God. Ask him to sort of re-baptize our imaginations and our conceptions of what it means to be a family. And for the Apostle Paul, that means coming together to a time and a place of prayer. And this morning as we conclude this first part of our series in Ephesians, we're finishing chapter 3 today. And in the new year, we'll in chapter 4. But as we bring this back to a place of conclusion for now, we finish with Paul's prayer for this new family. He's been spending so much time exploring and, and, and driving home our identity in these past three chapters. And now he wants to, to offer that family into God's hands in prayer. If you'll remember, we began with this prayer back in early September, and we shared some of our own prayers for this church at that time. Today, we're we're going to listen to Paul's prayer again. We're going to notice how he prays and what he prays. And then at the end of our time this morning, I'm going to to give you an opportunity to, to commit to praying for our church in a particular way in the months ahead. So I want you to look briefly with me at the structure of Paul's prayer here in verses 14 through 21. We see that the prayer Paul prays has three parts. It has an address, a beginning where Paul reminds us of who it is we are praying to, who it is we're approaching in our time of prayer as a family. The second section, the middle and longest section of this prayer are the requests, the things that we are asking God to do, things we're asking for. And wants to pay attention to to what and how Paul prays for those things. And finally, Paul concludes his prayer with a benediction. Paul circles back to the one we are praying to, but in particular in this benedictory piece, he focuses on the one who is able, the one who who is worthy to, to hear and to respond to the requests, focusing on the things we've asked in accordance with God's power. So I'm going to read this whole prayer in one go, and then we're going to come back and look at each piece. This is Paul's prayer for the family of God as we're seated together around God's table. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church 
and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let me add to that our own prayer, and then we'll dive into this first section. Jesus, thank you for Paul's great faith. Thank you that he is like an older brother to us, pointing us to the family that we now participate in. Help us to hear his words, help us to hear his prayers and his desires for us. And may you make those prayers come alive in us as your people today. May the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of all our hearts, today and in every day forward, be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins this prayer again with the address. He wants to clue us into whom we are coming to. We need to know who it is that we are approaching. Because that, that shapes the language we use, right? The, the person we stand before shapes the attitude with which we communicate. It can even shape the posture in which we communicate. And so as we come into this new family, as we think of ourselves together as one new people in the church, how do we imagine the God who has called us together? Who is he? What is he like? Well, here in verses 14 and 15, Paul reminds us that at his core, the God, the, the person who has called this new family into existence, is one we approach as our Father. The language of fatherhood not only appears here, but throughout Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it appears in the way Jesus teaches the people of God to pray or to come to him as our Father. And that, that word is full of different meanings and connotations. The word used here in the Greek is one that in, in Greco-Roman culture would, would often be described as the pater familias, right? the father, the, the head of the local household. And as Peter O'Brien, a biblical scholar, comments on this particular word, he says the term here used for father not only conveys a, a measure of intimacy and, and proximity and closeness, but that word also has overtones of dignity and authority. Notice that as Paul comes into the presence of our father, he kneels, he humbles himself, he makes himself low. And that's because throughout this letter, Paul has described how God is working as that dignified father. The one who has used every ounce of his power and authority and resource to bring this great new family into existence. In Ephesians, we see God as a father who, who Dom spoke about last week, making arrangements, right? The, the household, the oikos of God. God has arranged, God has ordered, God has energized this family in order that it might be healthy, that it might be cared for, that it might flourish, that it might be established. And so when we come to God in prayer as his family, he is the father who has formed us, right? We owe our very existence to him. 
But Paul goes on to say in verse 15 that he's not just our father. He doesn't just father a select few. But Paul says actually he's the father of every family in heaven and on earth. Right? Whether, whether we know it or not, whether people are, are, are able to recognize him as their father, God's household is not just local, it is universal. It is cosmic. It spans heaven and earth. And as Dominic reminded us in his message last week, the plan of this father is to unite everything. Right? That's the mystery of the gospel. To unite everything in heaven and on earth into and under and through the person of Jesus Christ into one new family. Right? He's a father who desires all his children to come back and, and to be around his table and to be reunited with him. And so as Paul begins his prayer, he says, this is who we now sit before. This is who we approach. This is the one I kneel in the presence of. God, our Father. The Father of every family. And he begins this prayer with this, this beautiful balance of both dignified reverence for our Father as well as privileged intimacy. And it, it's knowing both the, the access he has to his Father, but also the great power of that Father that Paul then presents his requests to him in verse 16 through 19. Listen to what Paul prays for. I pray that out of the Father's glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Paul comes to the Father with these requests. I want you to think back to the last time you asked your parents for help with something. That might have been a couple days ago for some of us. It might have been decades ago for others. Right? But, but when you come to your parents, what, what was it you were asking for? Why did you go to them? For most of us, we, we tend to go on our own way most of the time until we hit upon an area of great need. Until we've exhausted our own resources, our own know-how. And then and only then do we usually come back to, to our mother or our father with the courage and the humility to ask for help. And it's because we've arrived in a place where we desperately need something. And so as Paul begins to pray to his father here on behalf of the family, the, the church of God, specifically in Ephesus. I think Paul is praying to those places of great need that they have. Remember a few weeks back, we spoke about who these people were in the, the churches of Asia Minor, these cities and towns Paul is ministering in. 
And we said that not only was there no Christian majority in that place, but in fact, joining the family of Jesus had great social consequence. It presented great difficulty to them in their daily lives. Paul frequently describes his time in and around Ephesus as as one of the darkest periods in his ministry, one of the places of greatest that, that as he traveled through, he almost despaired of life itself, he says. And so when Paul envisions these friends, these family members, and he brings them before the Father in prayer, what does he ask the Father for? Well, he asks for the thing that they lack most. He asks for power. Paul says, Lord, make this new family of yours powerful. Look with me at verses 16. Look how Paul prays there. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he might strengthen you with power. Power to become affluent and well-educated and highly favored citizens. Maybe not. Or in verse 18, when he prays that they might have power together with all God's people to always be right and to eliminate every enemy they have. Okay, that's not what these verses say. Even if it's the kind of power we might envision or the kind of power we might pray for. But Paul does, in fact, pray for power in two repeated forms. But they are far more redemptive targets and and conceptions of power. What kind of power does Paul pray for the family of God? First in verse 16, he prays for the power of of inheritance. That God might strengthen them with power through his spirit in their inner beings so that Christ might dwell praying that God would make his home in them. He's prayed throughout this letter that that the people of God, the family of God that God has called into being would open their eyes in order to see that they are now in Christ. Or in this case, that Christ has made them his home, his, his dwelling place, his habitation. Paul says... The first prayer he has, the first kind of power he longs for the people of God to know is that they would know God's dwelling place is in them. Think about that in the context of the first century. Think about that in the context of the people of Ephesus to whom he's writing. They have no resources to build a dwelling place, to build a house of God, a place of worship, a temple that they could go to and meet with their God. Not only would it be forbidden and illegal, but but just up the road stands literally the largest building in the world at that time in Ephesus, a temple to the goddess Artemis. There's no way the people that Paul is writing to could compete with, with them in that form. But instead, Paul says, Lord, out of your glorious riches, give them a power that is far greater. Not to build a house for you, but to become a house for you. For you to dwell in them. 
to make your home in their hearts through faith. Lord, would you do that in your family, Paul says. In the same way that you filled the body of Jesus Christ with your presence in the incarnation, would you do that now through your same power in us? Would you make your strong and abiding and permanent home in your people? But give us the power of habitation. And then to that first request for power, he adds a second. In verses 17 and 18. He prays not only that Christ would begin to make his home in us, but that, that as that dwelling place is established in us, that we would grow up from it and, and know it as a foundation for Christ's immense and undescribable love. He prays first that we might be rooted and established in that love. And, and here he uses the image of, of a great tree, right? The root systems going down deep into the soil of God's love. Or like the, the foundations of a stone uh, building, right? Laid, laid beneath it in order to give it structure and support. He says, might, might we be established in the love of Christ? But then in verse 18, when he comes to pray for power again. Notice what he prays for. He does not ask for the power to love Christ more deeply. He doesn't even ask that God would give us the power to love our neighbors more profoundly. What Paul asks for firstly is that God would give us the power to comprehend God's love for us. What we need, Paul, Paul prays, is, is not a greater moral resolve to, to do better, to, to try harder at loving the Lord and loving one another. But instead, we need to be made aware. We need the power to comprehend, to grasp the, the ungraspable love of Jesus Christ. And he says here that it's a love that's so great it cannot be measured. It surpasses knowledge itself. He says, Lord, would you give us power somehow to fathom those dimensions, the, the love which surrounds us and is beneath us and establishes us as a people. Because that's the, the foundation, that's the place we begin, and, and it's from the conception of God's great love for us that we begin to love him and begin to love one another in turn. And that, that image of the dimensions of Christ's love makes me wonder if, if Paul's been reading the Psalms. In Psalm 103, we read about, about a God who is our Father and whose love is higher than the heavens are above the earth for his people. Right? Try to envision, try to imagine the space between the earth and the heavens above and Paul says, or the psalmist says, God's love is, is greater than that dimension, greater than that space. And the psalmist in Psalm 103 goes on to say that God, because of his great love for us, he takes our hostility and he takes our sin and he removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. Right? Greater than the expanse of the horizon so that there's no hint of that shame or guilt any longer. Just the pure 
and un unbounding, unbridled love of God for his people. He's a God, the psalmist says, who has compassion on us like a father for his children. So Paul prays that the church might have power to conceive, to know, to grasp who God is and how great his love spans the horizons. So these are the requests Paul is making. Right? For power to be inhabited, for power to be expanded, and, and, and for our boundaries of God's love to be pushed out even further. To know it more deeply. But how can we pray such a prayer? Aren't those, aren't those too bold? How, how could God possibly answer those prayers? How could he fashion a, a people rooted in his love that are drawn from, from every corner of the globe? Paul reminds us that as we pray to this God and Father, that we're to pray with boldness, and to pray for power because of who God is. We're to pray in accordance with his nature and his power. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Paul concludes his prayer saying, Now to him, now to our Father, who is able to measure more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us. To him be glory in the church. To him be glory in Christ Jesus throughout generations, forever and ever. Amen. Right, Paul is asking for these large and expansive requests on behalf of our family. Power to be strengthened and inhabited. Power to comprehend what cannot be comprehended. When it comes to this conclusion in verses 20, sorry, 20 and 21, he reminds us that he makes these immense requests because they are the only kind of requests congruent. If our God is the God who is able, if he is immeasurably powerful, then shouldn't we learn to pray Shouldn't we learn to ask him to do what only he can do in this family? As one said of this passage, it remains impossible to ask God for too much. Since by Paul's very definition, God's to give will always exceed our capacity to ask. Let me say that again. God's desire to give to this family will always exceed our capacity to ask. So Paul challenges us here with a truth that, that I struggle to lay hold of and that I imagine most of us do. He says, when you pray for the family, when you pray for the church, when you pray for the people of God, pray according to God's power at work within us. Pray according to the power of God that spoke the heavens and the earth into being in creation. 
When you pray for this family, pray according to the power that raised Christ from death itself. When you pray for this family, pray according to the power that took Jew and Gentile and every other known tribe and tongue on the face of the earth and has made them into one family. Pray according to that power. Paul says, don't forget, that same power is at work in you. It's at work in me. It's at work now in the church, in this age, and in every age to come. And so as a result, we're to pray boldly. Right? We're to play, pray with confidence. We're to pray with persistence that God would root and establish himself in this place. Because we already know the mystery of his will. We already know that he wants to add and grow and establish this family more profoundly. Because it is to his glory, Paul says. Right? It's through the church and in Christ Jesus that God desires to be glorified. And so my challenge for us today is to consider what are we praying for in regard to this family, in regard to the church. Right? Paul has, has lifted us up and offered us to the Father and prayed for these specific things. And so in the coming week, I'd like to challenge you to, to spend some time in prayer and ask God to give you maybe one or two things to pray consistently on behalf of this body. What do you desire? What, what does God desire in and through you to, to pray into being? That his power might be at work in us in these specific ways. So today, as we take our offering in response... When, when the plates go out, following the plates will be uh, a few people distributing cards like this. Okay, they're just simple construction paper. And you can take one of them for your family. You can each take one if you'd like. But take them home this What are you praying that God would do in and through the body of Christ at JCC in the coming months? Okay. And I want you to bring them back with you next Sunday to the service. If you miss next Sunday, bring them the Sunday after, okay? But we're going to collect them and we're going to put them up and we're going to continue to pray for those things to, to be done in this place, right? According to the power of God at work in us. Let me pray for us as we turn our, our worship into response and, and the giving of those prayers. Lord, we thank you that you in the person of Jesus Christ, have poured out on us every heavenly blessing. You have located us in Jesus Christ. You have made us your inheritance as a people. You've rescued us from death. You've united us to one another on the cross. And you have created this new family, this new household, in which you now dwell. Lord, we want to continue to pray in accordance with your power, the power at work in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. Lord, that that same power would be worked out in us together, in this place. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.